Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. If we who are sinful human beings and imperfect want something good for our children, what would God want for these people whom he has created? He has given them the breath of life and whose son has died on the cross for. Would, would God want for them to be, you know, in a place where they would experience more of the same kind of oppression or would he want for them to be in a place where they could have life and have it in abundance? The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Imagine you've just been dropped in the middle of a city center. Okay, you're just stepping off the bus. Now, you're in a place that you have never been, and I forgot to mention, you are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from home. Oh, and by the way, you're someplace where nobody speaks your language. Oh, and another thing, you've been dropped off the bus with your mom and your dad, and maybe your in-laws, and your kids. And you have no money and no papers. Now, figure out how to survive. This is how Mother Samira Page helps people put themselves in the shoes of a refugee. She says that even if you arrive in a place that's safer than what you left, you still feel like you've been hit in the head, but now you've got to think, you've got to act, and you've got to do it fast. How can Christians of all types all political persuasions from different traditions and backgrounds respond together faithfully to refugee neighbors. What types of welcome do refugees need, very, very practically speaking? And what are some steps that we can take within our own hearts and our own communities from fear and uncertainty regarding refugees to understanding and human warmth? The original title of today's episode was Refugee Pastor, not only because today's guest is a pastor among refugees, but also because she has been a refugee herself. 
from receiving a visit from the Virgin Mary, yes, you heard me right, to a house search in Iran, to a dangerous Rio Grande crossing with her family. The Reverend Dr. Samira Izadi Page has quite a story to tell us today. Samira is an Episcopal priest and the founder and executive director of Gateway of Grace, an outreach ministry to refugees, many of whom are survivors of severe trauma. Her organization helps refugees start over with donations, baby showers, job assistance, and language lessons. Gateway also trains volunteers and churches to adopt refugee families, which is the point where friendships form and integration begins. She's the author of two books, Who is My Neighbor, and co-author and co-editor of No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. You'll find links to these books in the show notes today. She's also a church planter and mother of four. This was a really eye-opening conversation for me personally. There's so much here that goes behind the curtain to the stories, hopes, and needs of people who are forced to run away from home. And it also reveals the frankly miraculous presence of God in the lives of people who've just lost everything, but also the presence of God in the lives of those who help refugees to rebuild their lives even if they do it initially with some reservations. Final note, this was recorded before the Russian attacks in Ukraine. But of course, we hope you have Ukrainian refugees in mind as well as you listen to this conversation, which we hope you very much enjoy. Mother Samira, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really want to just jump right in because there's so much ground that we could cover today. So please lead me and our listeners into your story with the church and your journey into ministry. Well, yes, God has been really good to me. Um, I was born and raised in Iran as a Muslim. My family was nominally Muslim, so there was never a conversation about religion, but I grew up after the Islamic Revolution, when, when the revolution happened in, in Iran, I was um, only six years old. Um, so I grew up in a pretty religious environment. Um, when I was six, I had a vision of the Virgin Mary. I was in a mountainous place. It was dark. I fell and I couldn't get up. And there was this huge rock. This lady came from behind the rock. She held my hand, picked me up, and she said that she was Mary. And when she did that, something just went through me and I loved her. Um, I asked my mom who Mary was, and uh, she said, which Mary? Because Mary is a common name in Iran. And so I told her what I had seen, and she said, oh, that's Mary, the mother of Prophet Jesus. So since then, I knew I wanted to be where Mary was, and I had no idea where that was. When I was nine, I saw a black and white movie called The Song of Bernadette, and that's a movie about St. Bernadette. And that's when I received my calling into ministry. I knew my life belonged to the church, and I had no idea what the church was. Eventually, I learned a little bit about the church. And at the time in Iran, all you knew uh, of Christianity was the Catholic church. You knew nothing about Protestant churches. So I wanted to be a nun. Uh, that didn't happen. And eventually, I got married. Um, my husband was a Sunni Muslim. I was Shia. And Sunnis are a persecuted minority in Iran. So he was being persecuted. And as all of that was happening, um, I finished school, went um, and had two children, went to college, 
And the first semester I was working on my PhD, one morning there was a knock on the door. And when I opened the door, life as we knew it just ended. The intelligence service came in, they tore the house apart, and they found a copy of Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, which was Mm -hmm. a forbidden book uh, in Iran. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. a big deal back in the 80s. And uh, Mm -hmm. that was basically the end of the life that we had. We had to escape, flee Iran empty-handed. We had to walk through the mountains over two nights with two kids, nearly froze to death. But God was so gracious to us. And when we went to Turkey, we hired a smuggler to take us to Canada because we had nothing, no documentation. Um, And uh, my husband's brothers who were in Dubai, they sent us money. We hired the smugglers. And they took us to Mexico and uh, basically abandoned us there. We had less than $500, no documentation, no no way forward, no way backward. And on the third day that we were there, I saw a store that said Oriental rugs. And I figured, well, that may have something to do with Persian rugs. Went up to the store, said in English, do you have any Persian rugs? And by my accent, he immediately knew I was Iranian. And he started speaking Farsi to me. Wow. And I started crying. I said, stay right here. I'm going to go get my husband. And as soon as my husband came up and he saw me, He said, aren't you the son of Mr. So-and-so? That guy's father had been my husband's tenant back in our hometown. Now, what are the odds? God was amazingly present, and uh, he really took care of us during that time. And eventually, after a year, we we left Mexico. We walked through the Rio Grande. It was one of the scariest things I've ever done. And uh, we nearly got separated from our child. I nearly drowned in the river. Uh, it was really, really scary. Um, and then when we crossed the border, we turned ourselves in at the immigration post and we applied for asylum. And they did everything that they needed to do. There's a process. They brought in the FBI. They interviewed us. And then the FBI asked us where we wanted to go. I wanted to go to California because that's where most Iranians are. My husband said, let's go to Dallas. And I was like, who in the world goes to Dallas? Because the image that I had in my head was the stereotype, uh, a stereotypical image of cactus and cowboys, you know. And uh, we got to Dallas at 6 a.m. I figured, okay, we are going to have a job and an apartment today. Um, A cab driver took us from downtown bus station to a Motel 6. I saw yellow pages, which I had never seen one before. started looking, saw apartment locators, started calling. I found that we couldn't rent an apartment because we didn't have jobs or social security numbers. As I was turning the pages, I saw Islamic Center. So I called them up and they said that they couldn't help, but they knew of a lady who worked with refugees. They gave me the number. I called the lady. She sent someone by 9.30 that same morning. This guy was at our door and he said, I have a place. I'm not sure if you're going to like it or not. He took us to a two-bedroom, fully furnished apartment in Dallas. By 11.30, we were in our own apartment. We had done our grocery shopping. We had paid for a month of rent in a city that we didn't know a soul with no documentation. Now, these people, they were Christians, but they worked with Bosnian refugees who were Muslims. That's how the mosque knew of them. And... um, They had prepared that apartment for a Bosnian family that was supposed to come a month before us. They never showed up. It was sitting as if waiting for us. We walked right into it. And when I told him about my interest in Christianity, he said, well, why don't you all come to church with us? And uh, he was a member of a Baptist church in Dallas. We went and it was immediately home. 
Um, and six months later, I was baptized there. Uh, eventually, I went to seminary at SMU, um, and SMU admitted me with zero transcripts for, uh, for my seminary education because I couldn't get any of my transcripts from Iran. It, that was another miraculous thing that happened, really. Um, and secondary seminary, God called me out of my beloved Baptist church and into the Episcopal church. That was really a difficult transition because I didn't know anything about the Episcopal Church, but and I loved my Baptist Church, um, but it was God's doing. And uh, then I went through the ordination process, was ordained, and then started Gateway of Grace um, as a missionary. How did you feel called specifically into the Episcopal Church? You said it was it was God who brought you there. What were the what were the signs that this was? A calling. So it started really um, when I in the in my Baptist church, I started experiencing more when we had uh, the Lord's Supper, which was once a month. And I would tell my pastor, I would say, you know, I know you're saying this is just you know a symbol, but I'm experiencing more. And he would say, well, this is that just your mystical Persian upbringing. And uh, <laughs> he was so sweet. And then um, whenever they had someone who wasn't ordained to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, an intern or um, at the time it was just interns. It was like someone would hurt me physically. Wow. And, and now my pastor was is a very distinguished pastor, you know, well-known in the nation and uh, with a PhD and he had been in ministry for a long time. And I would go up to him and with no, a new believer, Right with no theological education. And I would tell him, well, you are wrong for doing this, you know. <laughs> this was really hilarious. And he would tell me, you should get a life or something. And so anyway, after that, when I went to seminary, the director of spiritual formation at Perkins was an Episcopal priest um, at the time. And when I shared my testimony with him, he said, have you considered joining the Catholic Church? And I said, well, I think I have a call to ministry. I'm not sure if how that works with the Catholic Church. He said, why don't, why, don't you all come, uh, why don't you come to church um, with me? And uh, he was teaching a Sunday school at Church of the Incarnation. So I went uh, that Sunday and, you know, compared to my Baptist church, Incarnation looked really imposing and, you know, uh, I couldn't find the parking spot, so I was late. Um, so it was really intimidating to walk into that church. And when I opened the door, but something happened. Now, years and years ago, when I was 14 or 15, I had a dream. And in that dream, I was thirsty. I was looking for water. I was in a room that was in the shape of hexagon. It was marble and it was enclosed. So I went round and round and there in the middle of the room was a fountain. So that was one of those things that, you know, stayed with me. Um, and here I am many years later, Sunday morning, Church of the Incarnation, I opened the door to go inside the church, and the first thing that hits me in the face is that fountain that I had seen uh, in my dream. So that's how I knew wow. God was calling me to the Episcopal Church. I didn't know anything about theology. I didn't know anything about how to worship in the Episcopal Church. It was really God's calling, and, um, you know, it has been just such a blessing. Wow, that's incredible.
today. Today, today, you can get a free issue. Let me actually start again. That sounded like a Monday, Monday, Monday mattress sale. Okay, start again. Today, you can get a free issue of The Living Church magazine. Click the link in the show notes and get The Living Church's Lent Books issue for free, as I said. You'll sit with solitude and stillness among artists and saints. You'll go on a rollicking Roman pilgrimage with me, and you'll uncover Andy Warhol's Catholicism, plus find tips for reversing the COVID slump. You'll also enjoy a treasury of reviews of new titles on Anglican and Lenten devotion, reading scripture, incarnation and abundance, and deconstructing the smartphone. It's great for Lenten meditation or curling up on a cloudy day with the latest new read. Download a free PDF of the whole issue today by clicking the link in the show notes. Samira, it's so manifest that your calling comes out of your own story. And that seems to be, I mean, that's, that seems to be how vocation works. But I love when examples are so bold like this, when sort of God draws these outlines in such bold shapes and colors. There aren't many refugee stories you probably couldn't connect with. You did not have documentation. You were technically, technically illegal. You were smuggled. You almost died. I mean, you, you, you had the Rio Grande crossing. You've had the experience of fleeing persecution in a Middle Eastern country. You have been Muslim. You've been Baptist. You've been Episcopalian. You've been connected with the Catholic Church. You lived in Iran, Turkey, Mexico, Texas. All these different experiences are ones that I would imagine really help you to connect with the people that you work with. And I'd love to talk more about that in a moment. But first, I have a question about your about this time in between the vision of the Virgin Mary when you were six years old and your baptism. This was a long journey, too in which all these things were happening. So what did you do to sustain your faith in this vision, in this, in this desire to be where Mary was until you actually had a chance to join the church? I, it sounds like you had some dreams that helped sustain that faith. You know, at the time when it all started, I didn't have the vocabulary nor the understanding to call it faith or to call it a calling. Um, you know, I was a child. Um, but what happened was I start, I had this <laughs> um, appetite for reading. And uh, when I was, it was to the point that um, I started reading Descartes and Voltaire when I was nine. And I had finished reading all the Western classics by the age of 11. Um, I remember I had, I started a library for neighborhood kids when I was eight with library cards, you know, and I, I just loved reading. It was hilarious. <laughs> what's, what's funny is I did the same thing. I took all my books and I, I actually, I don't know how my parents put up with this, but I would write on the spines of my books. I'd make up my own call numbers yes, and I would then try to offer my books to the neighborhood. But strangely enough, none of the neighborhood kids wanted my personal library, but there you go. Yes, I did the same thing. And I would even charge them a small amount because I was worried they wouldn't return my books. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't try that. I should have tried that. <laughs> it was funny. But um, I, I, at the time, I didn't recognize how much I, what I read was um, 
under the Christian influence, you know, like Le Miserable, like, you know, Daddy Long Leg, like Brothers Kromosov. And so all of those things really shaped me and formed me um, and helped me develop, well, God really helped me <laughs> develop this heart of compassion. Um, so that was really what sustained me. And uh, the other thing was, when I was in Iran, I purchased a book that was um, written by this uh, prosperity gospel, charismatic person, and it was translated into Farsi. So even though it was a book that was really, now that I think about it, not theologically sound, uh, but during that difficult time in Mexico, that sustained me. It was a very, very, the, the one year that we were in Mexico was extremely difficult, extremely dangerous, um, with many heartbreaks. Um, and that book really sustained me, um, you know, so God uses anything. And when I remember when I was in Mexico, in Mexico City, there was this, there's this beautiful neighborhood called Coyoacan. And uh, whenever I would get really homesick and had a hard time, I would just go inside this old, old church um, in Coyoacan and just sit and pray. But again, I couldn't name um, or describe my faith at that time. It was just God moving me forward. The way I describe it is like, or my whole life is like being in a river. You know, when you're in a river, um, you can either go with the flow of the river where the force of the water is taking you, or you can try to get out holding up to, you know, tree branches, you know, on the shore or, or little rocks and get yourself injured and wounded. And ultimately you're going to have to go with the river because the force of that river is much stronger, you know, than your own energy. Um, so that's how I feel about my, my experiences and my faith journey. That's so beautiful. I'd like to turn now to your ministry with refugees and to refugees in Dallas. And first I want to ask you, who is a refugee and how is a refugee the same as or different from an immigrant? How would you answer that? That's a really good question. Uh, so the, the term refugees and asylum seekers or immigrants are basically the distinction is legal. The experiences are, are the same, but the, there is a legal dis, uh, difference. Uh, so a refugee is someone who has fled their own uh, country, their home country, crossed international borders, and uh, has gone to the United Nations for um, High Commissioner for Refugees, applied for refugee status, or a government agency uh, in that country that is, uh, or nonprofit that is designated by the UN to process refugee claims. Uh, and the the process is really ro- long, and right now it takes about nine to ten years um, since these oh refugees start the process. Uh, there are different levels of interview, and if they get through all of that and survive, really, uh, then um, and if they get get assigned to the United States, then there is background check and the uh, that Department of Homeland Security and FBI and, you know, all of those uh, uh, federal agencies have to do in order to make sure that these people are safe to enter the country. Um, and then there is also uh, medical exams that's, that get done. Uh, so these people 
you know, when they come here, the government knows more about them that they know about themselves probably. So that's, so when they come, they come here fully legally. Uh, and after a few weeks, they receive their social security card and work permit, and they can start working and build a life here after five years. Uh, and then after a year, they apply for a green card. And after five years, they can apply for citizenship and they become a U.S. citizen if they haven't done, committed any crimes. That is a long process. It's a very, very long process. We have um, refugees, persecuted Christian refugees in Turkey who have been approved. Um, and so they have already spent like th- four years or so. And it has been, they had already spent four years and it has been four years now since they got their approval, but the process of their final interviews has taken so long. And one of them is actually a member of Grace Community, which is our Farsi church plant, uh, mostly persecuted Christians from Iran. And um, husband and wife, they are separated from each other. They have been separated since they got married, uh, immediately after they got married. And uh, it did nothing just happen, happens. Nothing is happening with, with the case. And the husband is in Turkey. The wife is here. So there are a lot of stories of heartbreak and difficult situations uh, when we talk about refugees. Now, immigrants or asylum seekers are different. They... They have the same struggles, you know, they leave their country for the same, some of the same reasons, and they cross the border, but they haven't uh, been, uh, they haven't applied for refugee status beforehand. Uh, And was this where you, and is this where you and your family were at any particular point? Yes. Yes. So we we were not refugees technically, legally. We came here as asylum seekers. Um, And... um, Again, there is a process for that. When you come, for example, at the U.S. border, you know, you have to prove that your life is in danger and the, and there is application and interviews. And uh, then they will uh, let you come into the country if they, they see that, you know, you have a legitimate case. And then you have to go to court uh, in front of an immigration officer first. And then you have to go to court um, and that's a long process as well. Um, since the, when you apply for asylum status after five months, uh, you get um, you can apply for work permit, and then after that, it takes a few months for you to get your work permit. Um, so that's a challenging time, and the people who are in these situations really don't have any means to support themselves during that time. Um, so it's a more difficult situation. But as far as experientially, it's the same experience. It's the experience of loss. It's the experience of persecution, uh, grief, or, um, you know, having to leave your country. No one wants to leave their own country and their own, you know, people. And no one wakes up someday, one day and says, well, today is a beautiful sunny day. Let me become a refugee, lose everything, you know. Yes, Right. Let me let me let me cross a dangerous river with my children. That's yes. not something people wake up and say to themselves. Yes, exactly. So it sounds like crossing a border legally with all of your T's crossed, all of your I's dotted is is just very difficult. And so we have more and more people who are in and in it and it's not it's not really compatible with a real emergency situation where where time is of the essence for someone to leave. And they don't have several years to wait and, and go through paperwork and these things. 
And the numbers of people who are uh, asylum seekers um, and, and are refugees in that sense, maybe not in the technical sense, are increasing, as well as I would guess the number of refugees who are trying to go through all the process and cross their T's and dot their I's. And so refugee ministry is so important right now, not only for kind of catching people and helping them as they enter and helping them to adjust, but also as a way to teach people how to be neighbors to people who are new to their country. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, I I believe Gateway of Grace is really blessed in this way. I mean, I just think it's a great example of refugee ministry, especially in a growing refugee area. And, and if people want to know more about it, we'll include a link to the show notes where they can learn more about your ministry there and go to your website. Now I want to, I want to unpack a little more about what you do at Gateway of Grace. And my understanding is that you concentrate on two areas. The first is providing some basic holistic services classroom teaching and tutoring, groceries, childcare, furnishing apartments. You host dinners and parties and some Bible studies, and you have some some Christian ministry happening when people show interest in wanting that. But you have another emphasis as well, and maybe it's even your primary goal, and that is to change the temperature in the room when it comes to refugees a video on your website describes it as, as moving from a cold to a warm temperature. Can you say more about that and about the importance of that right now? Yes. So Gateway of Grace is a church mobilization ministry, basically. Um, so it mobilizes the church, removes fears and prejudices and the unknowing, um, kind of energizes the church to do mission work and uh, equips them, trains them, uh, the volunteers, and then provides platforms for volunteers to serve refugees in many different ways. Um, You know, my heart is really the mission of the church. Before I knew who Jesus was, I I knew that I loved Mary and I loved the church. So the the missional well-being of the church is really my passion. So when we uh, equip Christians to serve refugees, uh, we are doing a few things. We are not only serve loving our neighbors, but also our good witnesses. Uh, we are being good witness, witnesses of Christ and his redeeming work. We are, we are being ha- his hands and feet, but also his witnesses. It's not about us. It's not because we don't do mission work. We don't reach refugees and serve them because we are good people or because uh, we, are, we are philanthropists, or, or we fulfill ourselves, you know, we, sense, we have a sense of fulfillment in what we do. We do this as Christians who are filled by the Holy Spirit and whose spirit empowers them and moves them to do the things that Christ would do for people. If we, who are sinful human beings and imperfect, want something good for our children. What would God want want for these people whom he has created? He has given them the breath of life and whose son has died on the cross for. Would, Would God want for them to be, you know, in a place where they would experience more of the same kind of oppression? Or would he want for them to be in a place where they could have life and have it in abundance? 
if I'm a refugee and I first drop into a new country, where do I want to live? Where, where are places that refugees tend to want to live? And what are the main things when they first arrive? And then let's say six to 12 months down the road too, that people who are refugees want. So when, when I come again, when I come, where do I want to live? And what immediately do I want and need? And then six to 12 months down the road, how do those needs change? Right. So um, when you enter a new country, uh, especially as a refugee, for example, with Afghan refugees right now, uh, and you come from severe trauma and experiences of war and, uh, and death and destruction and enter a new country, it's like having been hit in the head. You know, or having uh, when you have when you wake up from a nightmare, you know, you're confused. Uh, you know, you don't you are disoriented. You don't know where to go, what to do. You know, what even to want or to expect. So the first thing that they need is uh, and they want is having a safe place, having a safe place for for their family. Um, and then, you know, the basic, the basic things to, to meet their family's immediate needs. Uh, and then eventually when uh, they start thinking about, you know, a job and uh, finding a job, that's another thing that they need almost immediately. Um, and then um, they don't think necessarily about social connections uh, or, or integrating. They immediately want to see who can help them, um, whether it be, it, be it their own community, people from their own community or Americans, you know, they, they don't care at that point, you know. And then as time goes by, they start um, settling in. Uh, they start feeling um, more um, rested emotionally. And then they think about things like, okay, my wife needs English or um, I need to be able to to improve in my job, or I need a car. You know, so those are the things that ch- that change eventually by time over time. Um, thinking about the, your schools, this the schools for your children, um, and how um, your children can be successful in school. So those are the secondary thoughts um, and needs that they have, but the immediate wants and needs are really security, safety, and meeting the immediate needs that they have. Is there a point at which you see, and I, and I wonder how many people you see this happen with, and then how many people who, who hesitate to go to this stage or maybe never do, and they, they live perfectly happily in another country and never get out of their community in terms of significant relationships with neighbors. Do you see what I mean? So if you're, if you move to a community where people are from your country or they're from your culture or they speak your language or your dialect, that is an extremely good place for you to be because that's a place where you can feel safe, where you can feel comfortable, where you know what's going on. You have neighbors you can talk to. It might be easier to make friends. It can also be a way to stay safe so that other neighbors who might want to have a relationship with you potentially, it could be harder for them to do. And I'd like to tell you a story, and it's a story about a Walmart. And it it illustrates 
my question for you. So are you ready for this story about Walmart? Okay, here we go. So I have a friend who, who shall remain nameless as she's an, um, an incredible person, incredible Christian woman, very thoughtful, great sense of humor, et cetera. And in the town where she lived, there were two Walmarts. There was what was known as the good Walmart and what was known as the bad Walmart. And the good Walmart is the place that essentially people who were American citizens could go and they could feel comfortable because people there mostly looked like them, disciplined their children like they did. The store was very organized. Um, When you took something off the shelf, but you didn't want it, you'd put it back in the place where it goes. So this was the Walmart that my friend liked to shop at. But then there was the bad Walmart, quote unquote. And the bad Walmart is the Walmart that a lot of Somalian refugees who'd moved to the U.S. shopped at. And so if my friend ever went to the quote unquote bad Walmart, she felt incredibly intimidated, incredibly uncomfortable. There were women, not just in hijabs, but niqabs. Um, And so this, my friend would walk in and it just looked like a lot of people dressed like ninjas to her and, and speaking a language she didn't understand, speaking more loudly in public than she was used to, not necessarily putting things back on the shelf if they turned out they didn't want it, disciplining their children differently or not disciplining their children enough, in her opinion. And so when she would go to this Walmart, she just felt stressed and anxious and she didn't want to shop there. So in my conversations with her about this and about the the Somalian population in her town, she expressed a desire to be a good Christian and to be a good neighbor, but was really confused about how to even have relationships with a community that seemed really happy to kind of keep to itself. And so I know there are people who have definitely fears and and some panic moments that need to be addressed, but also have concerns that aren't illegitimate about what are the contours of actually becoming neighbors with people who are foreign to me. So as you're working in this ministry of temperature change, as well as meeting the needs of refugees, practically speaking, also changing the dialogue, changing the attitudes. How do you balance giving space for citizens' honest fears and concerns about having a lot of people they don't know come into their communities? With How do you balance this with being clear on the Christian command to love our neighbors? Imagine you are somewhere in China, but no one seemed to speak English. How would you feel? Imagine if your mother was dropped, you know, or or your father or your neighbor, if they were dropped in the middle of a large city in China with no relationships, no support, um, not understanding the culture, how would you feel, right? And how would you appear to the traditional Chinese people? you would probably appear as very unruly, extremely impolite, right? Mm. And not knowing how things work, messing things up. So, you know, it's all a matter of perspective, but they are here. That's a fact, that these refugees are here and there are, you know, rules and regulations here. There are standards here. 
but they haven't lived with those standards just as someone in the U.S. hasn't lived with the Chinese standards, right? So how would you be able to 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 reach those standards or to and to know even there are standards if no one shares them with you? But they are human beings, you know. Under that covering, you know, there there is a woman. There is a woman with the same hopes and desires and dreams, you know. Uh, maybe not dreams, because dreams are uh, given, you, you you are able to have dreams if you have opportunities, you know, and uh, sometimes you are so oppressed that you can't even have dreams, right? So there's a human being who has been created in God's image for whom God has plans and purposes. That makes a difference. The other thing is, you know, uh, when we use big terms like refugees or like, you know, refugee community, how do I connect with them, you know? It's not about connecting with with the community. It's about connecting with an individual. So how do you connect with an individual so that you get to know them, you get to know their culture, you get to know their hopes and dreams and sufferings and oppression, you know? Um, So you connect with uh, organizations or ministries that that do the work, that can help you... um, if, if you see that you are not able to make that connection on your own, we have the, I always share this story. It's a, it's a friend of mine. She's a faithful, faithful Christian woman, um, spirit-filled. But uh, when I first started the ministry, I was doing everything myself. And um, I spoke at this person's church. She didn't sign up to be part of the refugee ministry at the church. Other people did. And she's extremely, extremely politically conservative. You know, she has her own, um, you know, political understandings and all of that. But she really, really disliked uh, refugees and immigrants, wanted them out of this country. She was fearful of Muslims. One day I needed help moving a sofa for a refugee family. Uh, It was the beginning of the ministry. I was doing everything myself. And this woman had a truck. And I called her and I said, will you help me? She came and she met this family and it changed her life. Through that one interaction, she uh, now has <laughs> her, her children, her sons, they tell her, mom, you should be on no fly list or something because you have more Muhammads in your name than you have Americans. <laughs> she adopted that woman, that same woman who wanted all of these refugees and immigrants out of this country. She has adopted this whole clan of Iraqi brothers. They oh, called her mama. Oh she was there when oh. their baby was born. So, so these are stories of transformation that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit when, That's right. when you um, are intentional about, you know, about being obedient and faithful and finding ways to connect. Now, I love the story of your conservative friend. Can you tell me what are some, who are some of the other Christians that you've been working with in Dallas? You're an Episcopal priest, but I I know you're working with other Christians. I'm sure you're working with some Baptists some Presbyterians, some non-denom churches. Can you think of one or two of your most fruitful, collaborative, cross-tradition relationships Obviously, most of the churches that we have are Episcopal churches in our diocese, but also across denominations. And uh, 
when I see as at our events or even at our school that people from two different churches, two different denominations, from conservative to liberal, you know, whatever you label them or don't label them, you know, they come together and serve refugees in the name of Christ or, or pastors. When we have, when we, when I see pastors and priests, you know, at our events from different denominations, that is a glimpse of the fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus that says, let them be one as you and I are one so that the world may know that you have sent me. That's a testimony. That's a witness to Christ's power and, and uh, his sonship. Um, so that's, you know, that's really significant for, for us. We have amazing partner churches. I really can't name one or two because all of them are incredible we have Presbyterians, we have Baptists, we have um, non-denominational, we have uh, all sorts of people, all sorts of denominations that uh, volunteers, that Catholic, you know, they come, they come and they serve refugees. What I can tell you is, as Episcopalians, we, we have, you know, certain strengths, and uh, one of them is obviously caring for, uh, for all people, in the name of Christ and and loving them. Baptists have, you know, a few gifts and the strengths of their own, you know, and their their care and concern for mission and evangelism is one of them, you know, and that's that's always inspiring. That's, uh, That's always fruitful. Yes, and I love that you mentioned Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of John. I just got back from a pilgrimage to Rome during the week of prayer for Christian unity. And so that passage was brought to mind many times and meditated on many times. And one of the biggest principles of Christian ecumenism, Christian unity, is the sharing and appreciating of one another's gifts, that we are not complete until we are appreciating, honoring, and sharing the gifts that God has given to all of us with no remainder nobody left out. We are close to our time for today, but I want to ask you one final question. What are you praying for right now, Samira? I'm praying for um, refugees in Afghanistan, well, the people of Afghanistan, um, and those who have worked with American soldiers who are still um, in Afghanistan, refugees from Afghanistan in other countries. Uh, They have suffered tremendously. And many of them are suffering from guilt. Those who come here, they suffer from survivor's guilt because they have left family behind. So I pray for those. Um, I pray for persecuted Christians uh, who, in, in countries where they are being persecuted, as well as those who are refugees in other countries awaiting to be placed into a country permanently like the United States, I pray for them. Um, and I pray for wisdom, for, for Gateway of Grace, uh, for me, my, you know, our staff, uh, to really be faithful, to be faithful to the trust that, for myself, to be faithful to the trust that our volunteers, our donors, you know, they put on, on, on me individ- as, as a person, really, a lot of these relationships are friendships, you know, and I always tell my husband, I say, you know, it's, it's God's grace, really, that's, that's maintaining and, and sustaining us. But uh, I would rather die than to do something that would betray the trust 
that these people have for, show for us, you know, every day, our volunteers, our donors, our partner churches. Those are the things that I pray for, really, that are on top of my list. <laughs> well, if anyone is in the Dallas area, I would encourage them to go pay your ministry a visit and visit your website immediately after this podcast episode has finished. And if you're not in the Dallas area and you cannot give Gateway of Grace a visit, then please join Samira in her prayer requests and lift them up. Mother Samira, I have been speaking with you. You are known as the Reverend Dr. Samira Page, and it's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. Thanks for tuning in today to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. We've got an event coming up in Oklahoma City, specially tailored for young clergy and seminarians, especially those who want to dive deeper into the Anglican tradition and what it means for our time. I promise our conferences are really fun, so you can just come for that too. Special discounts for early birds and students. Check it out at tlci.livingchurch.org forward slash calendar, or just click the link in the show notes to get on that bus. Come back in two weeks when I talk with New York City priest and fellow podcaster, Father Jacob Smith, for a conversation about the art and craft of preaching, its edifying and not so edifying moments, how to beat a slump and how to keep growing as a preacher. Do not sit on those seminary laurels. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.